All right, good to see everybody today. Glad that you're here. I'm sure a number of you have advice for Robert Sutton, our song leader, about marriage. Just want to uh, ask you to make that advice positive, glowing, about the wonderful institution of marriage. I, uh, I want to begin this morning with a little piece that uh, I think will get us into the topic that we're looking at, and it just speaks to a, a reality, a reality in all of our relationships, and it's basically this, that as you do relationship with another person, uh, you might find that on the front end, they're, they're easy to get along with, but the more and more time you spend with them, you begin to pick up some of their idiosyncrasies some of their quirky factors, and you find that over time it's, uh, it's harder and harder to live at peace with other people. Some of you have experienced this maybe uh, even in your own marriage. But um, this kind of brackets that. Uh, dear diary, stay with me on this. For my 40th birthday this year, my wife, the dear, purchased a week of personal training at the local health club for me. Although I'm still in great shape since playing football on my college team 25 years ago, I decided that it would be good to go ahead and give it a try. I called the club and made my reservations with a personal trainer named Belinda, who identified herself as a 26-year-old aerobic instructor and a model for athletic clothing and swimwear. My wife seemed pleased with my enthusiasm to get started. <laughs> the, club, the club encouraged me to, to keep a diary to chart my progress. This is really good. Started my day at 6 a.m. Tough to get out of bed, but found it was well worth it when I ri- arrived at the club to find Belinda waiting for me. She is something of a Greek goddess with blonde hair, dancing eyes, and a dazzling white smile. Wow. Belinda gave me a tour and showed me the machines. She took my pulse after five minutes on the treadmill and was alarmed that my pulse was so fast, but I attributed it to to her standing next to me in her lycra, lycra aerobic outfit. I enjoyed watching the skillful way in which she conducted her aerobics class after my workout. Very inspiring. Belinda was encouraging as I did my sit-ups, although my gut was already aching from holding it in the whole time she was around. (laughs) This is going to be a fantastic week. Tuesday, I drank a whole pot of coffee but finally made it out the door. Belinda made me lie on my back and push a heavy iron bar up in the air, and then she put weights on it. My legs were a little wobbly on the treadmill, but I made it a full mile. Belinda's rewarding smile made it all worthwhile. I feel great. This is a whole new life for me. Wednesday. The only way I can brush my teeth is by laying it, the toothbrush on the counter and moving my mouth back and forth over it. I believe I have herniated both pectorals. Driving was okay as long as I didn't have to steer or stop. Belinda was impatient with me, insisting that my screams bothered the other club members. Her voice is a little too perky for early in the morning, and when she scolds me, she gets this nasally whine that's very annoying. Thursday, Belinda was waiting for me with her vampire-like teeth exposed 
as her thin, cruel lips were pulled back in full snarl. I couldn't help being half an hour late. It took me that long to tie my shoes. Belinda took me to work out with dumbbells. When she wasn't looking, I ran and hid in the men's room. She sent Lars in to find me, and then as a punishment, put me on the rowing machine, which I sank. This is good. Friday. I hate that Belinda more than any other human being has ever hated any human being in the history of the world. Stupid, skinny, edemic little cheerleader. If there ever was a part of my body that could move without unbearable pain, I would beat her with it. Belinda wanted me to work on my triceps. I don't have any triceps. And if you don't want dents in the floor, then don't hand me the blankety-blank barbell or anything more that weighs a sandwich. She put me on the treadmill, which flung me off, and I landed on a health and nutrition teacher. Why couldn't I have landed on somebody softer like a drama coach or a choir director? Saturday. Belinda left a message on my answering machine in her grating, shrilly voice, wondering why I did not show up today. Just hearing her made me want to smash the machine with my planner. However, I lacked the strength to use even the TV remote and ended up watching 11 straight hours of the Weather Channel. (laughs) Sunday. I love this. Sunday. I'm having the church van pick me up for services today (laughs) so I can go and thank God that this week is over. I will also pray next, next year that my wife will choose a gift for me that is fun, like a root canal or a vasectomy. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Let's close in prayer. No. It just brackets the fact that in relationship, early on, when we're getting to know somebody, uh, there is that wonderful investigation point where they're easy to get along with and the relationship is fresh and invigorating. But the more time you're in a relationship, the more you have to deal with this issue of being accommodating, being tolerant. There's a book uh, that I uh, would encourage you to pick out sometime. It's written by an author named John Ortberg, and the book is called, a book has this title, Everybody is Normal Until You Get to Know Him. One of the things I'm going to suggest to you this morning, that there is a positive side, an admirable side to this, this thing called uh, tolerance or being accommodating. It's a positive side. But there's also a negative side, too, a negative side of tolerance that can be really deadly. And so when it comes to this whole business of being a tolerant person or an accommodating person, it's important that we're clear on which category that we're in. And that's part of what we're going to look at this morning. I thought it might be helpful making this message a little bit more applicable and poignant, uh, just to maybe give you what I'll call this morning a tolerance test. So if you've got a pen in your hand, you might just want to write down a number. I'm going to give you the basic scale. Number one is um, that you have a very, if you're one, you have a very high tolerance level. If you're at a one, your basic script is whatever you want, honey doesn't matter to me. You're very amiable. You're easygoing. If you're a 10, you have a low tolerance quotient. It's my way or the highway. Bottom line, 
it's, uh, you're, you're a bottom line person, uh, there are really no grays. And so when it comes to your relationships, I would, spe- I would say especially uh, your closest relationships, uh, it might be helpful to just give yourselves a number. Just write down a number. What might be fun for those of you who are married, uh, and if you're not married, maybe you can check this out with your roommate, uh, just to go ahead sometime today and give them the number that you landed on, that might be a real wake-up call uh, for many of us in this room in, in terms of where we landed on this tolerance quotient. Why do we start there? We start there because this church in Thyatira that we're looking at today had major problems, misunderstandings when it came to what it meant to be a tolerant church. This church, like every church, is involved in the struggle to be in the world, but not of the world. To struggle to live in the trenches of everyday life without being overly soiled by the values and worldview of the people that uh, surrounded them. And uh, this church in particular, as we're going to see this morning, was, was really losing that battle. And I would just say this is a, a real timely message for your life and mine. Because this, this same struggle, this same attention that we live into, a constant struggle to live a Christ-honoring lives in the midst of a uh, fallen world, surrounded by fallen people, How do I do that? How do I maintain my Christian integrity without losing my distinctives? How can I be a channel of grace in the midst of the darkness without letting my own light for Jesus Christ be snuffed out? When does compromise go the way of selling out to the point that I've really lost my distinctives and I've negotiated away those things that are most valuable? It's a key question. A little review, in case you've not been with us. We're, obviously, we're walking through the book of Revelation. We've looked at uh, a number of state of the church addresses that have come from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These state of the church, of, uh, state of the church addresses are being delivered to various churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. Thus far, we've looked at the church of Ephesus, the church, the church with a heart problem, the heartless church. We looked at the church of Smyrna, which was a suffering church, and Jesus offers words of encouragement to help them endure. We've looked last week at the, at the church of Pergamum, which was the confused church about what was important. And now this morning, we look at the church of Thyatira. This is the compromised church, and we read about uh, this church and their particular challenges uh, right here in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. So if you have your Bible open, um, we'll read this together. This is God's Word. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and faith, your service, and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, 
she misleads my servants in the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are powerful words. Uh, Church of Thyatira. First, I'd like to talk this morning, I'd like to look at the city, the city of Thyatira. It's important to know that this city was dominated by what are called trade guilds. Trade guilds. I want to talk about that for just a moment. We know from the inscription, uh, various archaeological findings in the area of Thyatira, that there were an extraordinarily high number of trade guilds, guilds more than any other city in Asia Minor. And these included guilds that uh, were for people who are weavers and potters and bronze workers and dyers and so on. Um, purple dye was a very big export item in the area of Thyatira. If you worked in one of these fields you would be expected to join one of these guilds. And if you don't understand that dynamic in Thyatira, you, you sort of miss the ethos of the city and what held it together. It was held together, really, by the formal and informal structure of these various guilds. You can kind of think of them maybe like you would a unions today. And what made these guilds particularly problematic is that they had various practices that found their origin and had their roots in pagan worship. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but let me just go on and say I, I'm not an anti-union guy, but um, in my own uh, story, I, I, I kind of got crossways with a... Uh, a, 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 the startup of, of of a union enterprise when I was in high school. I'll tell you a little bit about that. I worked on a, as a dock worker in a textile company in St. Louis. It was an after-school job, my senior year of high school. And uh, as things often uh, happened, the, the the guys on the dock felt like they would be better represented if they joined this particular textile uh, union. And there was a lot of talk going on, a lot of tension, and I came to learn that the vote to go into the union was going to be very, very close. A lot of posturing. 
A lot of talk. And, and so I was given the date when the vote would actually take place. I went home and I realized that the date for the vote was the same day that I left for my spring break trip my senior year in high school. And so I was sort of forced with a little bit of a dilemma. Should I stay and vote with my compadres on the dock and help them get into a union? Or should I jump in the car with my buddies and head to Daytona Beach so I can hang out with my girlfriend, Kathy Garberini? <laughs> Stay and vote for the union, Kathy Garberini. <laughs> and I, I, maybe I should embarrass to tell you this, but the beach won out. Okay, <laughs> So I go on down to Daytona, and I have a big time, and I can't really tell you about how big of a time I had there. But I was not a believer, so you fill in the blanks there. And I came back. I remember the first day I walked onto the dock, and the big old, uh, big old guy, the foreman, Bob, I went up to Bob, and this is exactly the way it happened. I walk up to him, and I'm kind of perky and shivered because I had quite a week. And I said, so how did the vote go? Got right in my face. He says, Anthony, I'll tell you how it went. We lost by one vote. <laughs> And then he took his finger out and he kind of pointed it in my chest. And he says, and by the way, nice tan. <laughs> so I finished my, my little project there and I punched out the clock. And that was the last day I ever went back to that particular dock for fear of my own life. A lot of sharp items on that, uh, on that dock. Um, the dynamic going on in Thyatira is that these unions, these trade guilds, were very, very powerful. And what made them problematic were all the rituals and all the feasts and all the celebration that had their roots in pagan culture. Hard to believe, but um, when these guilds would get together, they would actually take part in human sacrifices. The sacrifice of little babies given up to foreign pagan gods. The feasts were setting, settings for drunken, uh, rampant uh, sexual orgies, the darkest and most unimaginable practices that, took, that could take place, uh, took place. And the tension was that if you worked for the union, you would be expected, if you wanted to succeed financially, to take part in all these practices, to play the game, to be one of the boys. I'll just tell you, one of the reasons that I believe in the authority of the Bible, that it is God's word in toto, okay, is the clarity in which it addresses the real life, everyday challenges that we face. I want you to think about the dynamic of these guilds, and I want you to think about the tension in the marketplace, the temptation to compromise and to cave in, and to be one of the boys. It's uh, 2,000 years after these words were written. Uh, not a whole lot has changed, if you think about it. had a conversation with a guy earlier this week, and we were talking about an opportunity that he had uh, to, uh, to begin a, a sort of a different track in his career. And uh, by his own admission, the... the the new direction that he was going to take would align him with an industry that he didn't feel very good about because of their associations and practices. And so I said to him, I said, basically, I see one of two things happening 
to you if you go ahead and take this job. I said, first, I can see where you'd, you'd maybe get in the trench of that job and you'd get behind the curtain, you'd get kind of behind the scenes, and you'd have even a, a, a better perspective of the kind of uh, daily uh, ongoing practices of this industry. And it's going to sear your conscience. It's going to bother you more and more every day. And that burden is going to get heavier and heavier as you go along to the point where you know you're just going to have to get out of there and get into another industry. That's one thing that could happen. Another thing could happen is that you get in that industry and you, you cultivate the skill of denial. And you put in your 40 to 50 hours a, a week and uh, you do your job and you, you cash your paycheck and you try not to think about the larger implications of the industry that you're in and what it's doing to people. And so you learn just to not think about it. So one of those two things uh, can easily happy, happen to you. And, and the second one is the one that I'm most concerned about. That you sort of get desensitized to, this, to the sin that is around you to the point that you don't even realize that it's there anymore. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the Battle of Thyatira. They're a city dominated by trade guilds, and secondly, there's a tremendous pressure to conform. These practices are so appalling that they were actually called, in verse 24, Satan's so-called deep secrets. We don't know what that means, but I'll just tell you this. If Jesus is referring to Satan's so-called deep secrets, this is not a good thing. This is not something that is uh, going to produce life. So let's be clear about this. Here's the dilemma. If the dilemma that the church in Thyatira faced is if the Christians participated and had active membership in these guilds, they would have to be unfaithful to Jesus Christ. But if they didn't participate in these guilds, guilds it would be sort of like be committing economic suicide. They'd be thrown out of the club. It would kill them professionally. And so they had to choose. Am I going to serve in the marketplace? Am I going to sear my conscience? Or or am I going to trust God? Am I going to live a principle-centered life of integrity and an unwavering biblical ethic? Or am I going to be a chameleon and go along with the crowd in order to get ahead? And I just want to ask you, real pointedly, um, uh, because that same dynamic is before you today and will be tomorrow. What are you willing to negotiate in your situation? What are you willing to do in order to succeed professionally? i tell you what I think. I, I don't think the lines, the lines between right and wrong between what is ethical and what is unethical, I don't think those lines are are as gray, as confusing, as we would like to make them, uh, as we'd like to think that they are. I think it's far clearer than we'd like to maybe own up to. I think what tends to happen is that we allow greed or fear or pressure or pride to kick in and tune out 
the voice of the Holy Spirit who is saying, don't go there. Don't say that. Don't, um, don't present yourself this way. We tune out the voice of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, because we want to close the deal. Because we have our eye on a certain commission. Because we, we, we are intent, guys, young guys, I'm thinking about you especially, because we want to work our way up the org chart, and that seems to, way, to be the path that you need to take. It's that same mentality, you know? I'll just, I'll just compromise a little. I'll just rationalize a little. It's that mentality that Jesus is going after with a vengeance. The pressure to compromise and to be one of the boys and to sell yourself out spiritually. You see what is happening in the city in Thyatira. Tragically, that same mentality is working its way into the church. And before we look at um, the, the confrontation, I want to just say a word about the, uh, the accommodation. I love it that in the heart of God, He always, listen, He always leads with grace. He always leads with words of affirmation and words of encouragement. There were a lot of wrong things going on in this church. And it was costing them deeply in terms of spiritual formation, in terms of the presence of God. But before Jesus sort of moves in and starts performing spiritual surgery, he begins with some words of accommodation. And uh, that is just true to his heart. One of the greatest verses in the Bible where God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is the heart of God for you. He longs for you to succeed. He longs for you to have a future and a hope. And He always leads with grace. Always with encouragement. And so Jesus says, as I look at the church, here are some things that I see initially going on. And He lists them. Verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. I know that you are now doing more than you did at first. And so we are given uh, this picture of a church that is active in service. They're worshiping faithfully. They're caring for each other. There's a, a staying power. There is a resiliency in this church in the face of persecution. And not only that, that there's a, there's a growth dynamic in the church. He says you're now doing more than, than you did before. And so Jesus commends them for doing a number of things right. I see your love. I see your faith. I see you serving each other. I see you persevering in difficulty. I see that you're active. You're not coaching, uh, coasting. You're engaged and you're, you're, um, you're making progress. But as we've really seen in all of these churches, uh, there are things where they are... Um, commended for, but then there are things that they are um, confronted in. And now Jesus talks about the major concern, and here it is in verse 20. He says, beyond all these good things, nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Jezebel, some of you know, was um, 
a wicked queen. If you want to read more about her, you can read in 1 Kings uh, 16 through 19. She was the queen of Ahaz, who was the king. And because of her influence and idolatry and Baal worship, and so um, she, she really led Israel astray. She was the queen that caused all sorts of conflict for the ministry of Elijah. You can read more about her. And so there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not this term Jezebel was referring to an actual woman named Jezebel, or if it's used more uh, metaphorically to point to uh, the, the same type of wickedness that the woman Jezebel that characterized the woman Jezebel back in First Kings. We don't really know. But here's what is clear. Here's what we do know. We know that this woman, uh, who's, who was referred to as Jezebel, was bringing into the church all manner of heresy and ungodly practices. And you'll note in verse 20 and 21, it's just sort of an interesting phrase, the woman uh, Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Very interesting, and we need to remember that it's Jesus who is speaking, and what is going on here is this woman Jezebel, as she addresses the church, like I'm addressing you this morning, calling herself a prophetess, claiming to speak for God. It's as if Jesus shows up and says, you know, um, Jezebel, you, you claim to be a prophet, but you're not. You claim to be speaking for God. But you're not. And so Jesus does a mid-course correction on this woman Jezebel. Uh, among other things, she was teaching as a preacher and a leader that it was okay to commit acts, acts of sexual immorality. That it was uh, no big deal to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so she was teaching all sorts of things that were contrary to God's revealed word. And here was the real problem. Nobody confronted her on it. As she's preaching and she's giving all sorts of instructions, nobody came up to Jezebel and said, excuse me, just one second. You know what you're saying about sexual practices and food sacrifice to idols and idolatry. What you're saying, Jezebel, it doesn't jihad with what the Bible says. And so Jezebel You've got a decision to make. You either need to change your message or we're going to find ourselves a new messenger. But apparently, uh, we learn that nobody had that conversation with Jezebel. Apparently, nobody said a thing. They just tolerated her. You know, everybody has a right to believe what they want. You know, she seems sincere. Maybe it's not really hurting anybody. I've got to tell you, this word tolerance is a word that is misunderstood in our culture today. And I want to talk about that for just a moment, a few aspects, a few ways of looking at this word tolerance. First, there are different things that we should do when it comes to tolerance. We should tolerate stuff that isn't really important. We should tolerate stuff that we know we can't change. 
But then there's a dark side to this whole issue of tolerance that we should not, not tolerate stuff that's wrong and that we can change. Let's talk about that a minute. First, we need to learn to tolerate stuff that isn't really important. There are a lot of things, men, that you get all bent out of shape about that don't really matter. Some of you have little kids in the house and they're walking when they're supposed to run. And they're running when they're supposed to walk. They're talking when they're supposed to be quiet. And they're quiet when you want them to be talking. Some of you are married to a person that has a few quirks. And maybe uh, your wife's communication style is a little bit annoying. Maybe she brought into your marriage a few mannerisms from her own family of origin, from her parents, that drive you crazy. One author I like to read says it this way. One thing you need to do in life, don't sweat the small stuff. And then he goes on to say, really at the end of the day, it's all small stuff. It's all small stuff. We need to cultivate the skill, the ability of overlooking. It's a great verse. Look at this from Proverbs 19.11. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. As we go through life, one of the skills that we need to cultivate and grow in is just the skill of being a tolerant person. Just letting things go. Here's the second thing we need to learn. We need to learn to tolerate stuff that you can't change. Some of us need to grow in the realization that there are a lot of things in life that we have no control over. And so getting all exercised over something that you have no control over, it's a colossal waste of your time and it produces unbelievable anxiety in your life. I'll give you a picture of this from my own life this week. Tuesday, I took my oldest two boys out of school, and we headed down 55 to watch the Cardinals play the Sox. I'm from St. Louis. And it seemed to me, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I've always believed the Cardinals are God's team, but why not? I mean, why not? And I can't say I prayed about it, but as I sat in the stands, I certainly had this thought, you know, God, it seems to me, you know, I've got my boys with me, and uh, I grew up here in Bush Stadium. They're going to tear this place down. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, take them out of school, come on down here to St. Louis, that uh, the Cardinals winning and turning the series around Tuesday night, it seems like that would make some sense to me. And so I, I sat in the stands, and I watched all this going on, and uh, just like happened last night, I mean, the cards got waxed. And I'm up there in my bleacher seat. I'm giving Tony LaRusso all sorts of advice. Not quite as profane as the guy behind me who had a beer about every inning. It's really bad. I learned to tolerate him. But you know what? All the coaching and all the encouragement, all the all the, the batting instruction that I was trying, didn't matter a bit. Didn't matter a bit. See, some of us in life, we're living at a real high anxiety level because we're all exercised over stuff that we can't control. I love this quote from Anne Lamont. 
you know, the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think He's you. There's a lot of stuff in your life you just can't control. You've got to learn to let it go. But here, here there, there is a form of tolerance, and that's really what we're talking about today. We tolerate stuff that's wrong. And we tolerate stuff that we should change. And that's the dark side, the negative side of tolerance. And Jesus rebukes this church, and he says, This woman Jezebel, she was leading my people astray. She was teaching falsehood. She was denying my word, and nobody said a thing. You put up with it. You tolerated it. Blatantly wrong teaching and heresy from the leader, leaders, and nobody confronted it. And I've got to tell you, brothers, the same kind of thing happens in our churches today. If you listen to people, you'll hear them say, well, you know, you can't judge. Don't want to be hard on people. You want to be loving. Got to be accepting. Truth about the church in Thyatira, they were a loving church. They served one another. We've already heard that in the words of uh, accommodation from Jesus. That's one of the marks of the church is that the people in the church love one another. But you just got to know this morning that another mark of the church is that you to you develop to become a discerning Christian. A Christian man who has a well-tuned theological mind who is watching and listening closely to those who are teaching you. How's that going? It's a great verse from Titus 2.1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. I tell you something, when I'm driving to the office in the morning and I'm listen, listening to public radio 91.1, I don't expect the people on public radio to give me sound doctrine. If you listen to that station, you would probably say, that's good. Yeah. When I read the commercial appeal, the articles or the editorials, I don't expect to read sound doctrine in the commercial appeal. I don't. But in the context of the church, are you listening? In the context of the covenant community of faith where we've taken vows and we are submitting ourselves to God's revealed word, we should expect that from one another. We should. Part of the, of the uh, telltale signs of a, of a healthy covenant community is that that community is committed to the the volitional, authoritative truth of God's Word. The Apostle Paul is going right after this in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-6. We don't have time to unpack this a lot, but um, I'd like to read this verse. Uh, I think we've got it up behind behind me here. Because what he's talking about is a misunderstanding of the role of accountability within the church. That's what he's speaking about. Uh, sobering, one of the most sobering passages in the Bible. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? 
Even though I'm not physically present with you, he says, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. He's talking about them bragging about their tolerance. We're so tolerant. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Paul says you're not to judge those outside the church. That's God's job. But the very clear teaching of Scripture is that you are to judge. You are to discern what is going on inside the walls of the church. And I'll just ask you this morning, are you growing in your ability to discern truth? Are you growing in your ability or or your willingness to confront error, whether that be an error in teaching or an error in practice? What are you willing to negotiate away in terms of truth in order to keep the peace and to lovingly accommodate those in the church. These are strong words from Jesus. Even though uh, everybody else in the church is sort of flying along in toleration autopilot. Jesus says, I'm not about to wink at this. I'm not about to look the other way. And these are uh, what comes now, not just that you tolerate Jezebel, but he goes on to talk about the the wickedness that will be judged. And these are... uh, These are sobering words. He says, I will cast her, Jezebel, and all who follow her, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, which is an allusion to the fact that her bed was known as a place of pleasure and joy. And now her bed, that very bed, will be a place of judgment and death. He says, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. I will strike her her children dead. And I don't believe uh, what is being said here is that God is actually going to kill little children. I believe what is being uh, addressed here is that, that there will be a type of spiritual death that falls upon all of those who have, who have become this woman's um, children in terms of following her, listening to her, letting her mold their lives. Jesus says, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Here is the point. Jesus is very serious about truth. Jesus will not stand by while his character and the instruction of his word are trashed. And we need to ask this morning, we need to ask this question. How in the world could something like this happen? People listening to this kind of heresy week after week and yet not say anything. i tell you what I think. I think it has to do with the accommodation that this church had been given. As the people in the church looked at the dynamic going on within their little flock, I think they came to this basic conclusion. How could this be wrong? 
when so many things in our church seem to be going so well. We're meeting our budget. We're growing. Little kids are coming. Nursery is full. If all these things are going on and going well, then God must be in this. And it must not be a very big deal at all. Certainly, if God were angry, He would do something. I think one of the great problems in, in, uh, in our lives and in many of our churches today, please get this, is that we confuse God's patience with God's approval. We confuse His, His patience with His approval. And many of us here this morning have bought into that very thinking. Well, so far, so good. <laughs> I guess I really can enjoy my sin and the blessing of God at the same time. God hasn't struck me dead yet. And so it must be okay with Him. Sky hasn't fallen in on me, on me yet. I'll just say this as, as tenderly and straightforwardly as I can. You better be real careful in not abusing the patience of God. He is committed to truth. He is committed to leading you in the path of righteousness. This church looked at the good fruit. They looked at the positive evidence of ministry. And they thought, you know, I guess this Jezebel stuff, I guess it doesn't matter. And maybe you're looking at your life in some area of runaway sin and you know it's wrong and that's the basic conclusion that you've come to. God's still blessed in my business I'm still healthy, you know. Um, things seem to be going pretty well. I guess this area in my life, I guess it really doesn't matter. Don't confuse the patience of God with the approval of God. You know what? It matters. How you live your life, how I live my life in the presence of an all-holy God, it matters, brothers. It matters greatly. We've seen the words of concern. Let's look now at the one who's offering these words, the counselor, and then we'll end quickly with some words about the specific challenge. Just say this. These words are coming from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll note that he is described, describing himself as the Son of God. What we've seen in these letters thus far is that the title that Jesus gives himself is very, very deliberate. It's tied directly to the message he's about to deliver. And so you've got to ask the question, why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of God? It's the only time that title is used in the entire book of Revelation. Why here? i tell you what I think. I think it's being used here because Jesus is re... Um, he, he, is, he is reasserting his divinity, his deity, because he knows that this message that he's giving is a harsh message that contains judgment. This is not a message of comfort. Those of you who know me know I tend to really like to bring messages of comfort. My spiritual gift is encouragement. But I wasn't given a real encouraging passage to walk you through this morning. I'm just telling you like it is. 
And so Jesus says, this is the Son of God who's giving you this message. And, and when He looks at all that is going on, the Son of God does not look upon all this with approval. What does it say about the look of Jesus? It says His eyes are like blazing fire. As if to say He sees through all the rationalization all the justification. It says his feet are like are like burnished bronze, and we've learned that bronze is the the hardest metals that has staying power and won't rust. As just to reinsert this, that while this church is all over the map in terms of their spiritual convictions, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday, he's the same today, he'll be the same tomorrow. His feet are not about to budge as it relates to truth. He's planted firmly, this one who has eyes of blazing fire. We've talked about the city, the accommodation, the concern, the counselor. And then lastly, just in a few minutes, we'll talk about the challenge. Three, three words. The first word is repent. Look at verse 22. Jesus talking um, about those who follow Jezebel and her teaching. He says, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Earlier it says, I was, I was giving her time to repent, to confess and, and make things right. But now the time for repentance is over and you're going to have to face the judgment. I don't know when that time is going to come for you. I don't know when that time is going to come for me. But of all the things that you might want to thank God for, on your way to work this morning is that God was patient with you and that He has obviously, in His grace, given you one more morning, one more day to repent and to make things right. And that was a gift. And that was a gift from Him. It may be that in terms of facing some runaway sin in your life, it may be that you're going to need some help from a trusted friend and a prayer partner. It may be somebody who's around your table this morning. But I just urge you, as you look at whatever Jezebel-like heresy or practice uh, going on in your life, whatever that is, brother, my encouragement to you today from the words of Scripture is face it and repent. Here's the second word. Stop rationalizing. You know, when it comes to a point where we are going to deny God and turn our back on His Word, always, always, there's a decision to rationalize. Always. And this is just part of your DNA. It's like the great story of the guy who was on a diet and he knew he wasn't supposed to eat stuff, he passes by his favorite Krispy Kreme donut place. And then he offers his prayer, God, if there's a parking spot in front of Krispy Kreme, I believe it'll be your will that I stop and have a Krispy Kreme. And sure enough, the sixth time around the block, sixth time around the block, finally opened up for him. And we play all sorts of games like that, rationalizing, rationalizing. And I'm just going to ask you this morning, where are you rationalizing sin in your own life. I mean, I hear this all the time. Guys will say to me, you know, I'm in a marriage that is hard and I'm not happy. And I know that God would not want me to be in a marriage where I'm not happy because I need to be happy. 
And so I need to, I need to move on or I need to pull away from this marriage. Or, you know, if I give extravagantly to the kingdom of God, then I might not have enough money left to do all those things that I want to do. And boy, howdy, I, there's some things I really want to do. You know, I'm not really compromising myself that much sexually. It's not like I had a real affair. I mean, in our sexually crazed culture, um, it's not my fault that all these images come toward me. I'm not doing nearly as bad as the guy that I play golf with. I just think as, as we look in our lives, we, we fall into this slippery slope of rationalization. And the only way to confront that, please get this, is just to set in place what we'll call this morning a no-tolerance policy. A no-tolerance policy. Where we say, I will not compromise. I will face the truth. I will draw the boundaries. I will live in the light, no matter how hard that is. And I love it that Jesus ends, ends these words with, with uh, a word of encouragement. He says, for those of you who have not given yourselves to the teaching of Jezebel. I'm going to give you authority. Another word is power. I'm going to give you power over the nations. You will rule. You are not just the the accumulation of a whole bunch of desires. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so you're not a victim. You have power to confront the rationalizations and the subtle and sinister Voice of Jezebel that is as prevalent in our day as it was back in the day in Thyatira. And so whatever it is in your life that is is the Jezebel trying to get you off the narrow road, onto the side road where you're just satisfying the desires of your own flesh, Jesus has a word for you today, and here it is. Hold on. Okay then. Don't rationalize. Don't tolerate sin in your life. Because it's not going to fulfill your greatest desires. And as we think about the judgment that was brought on this particular church, my prayer for my life and for yours is that God would lead us in another direction. The way of life and peace and joy and a clean conscience. That's my prayer. Let me offer a prayer for us as we go. Lord Jesus Christ, these have been hard words confrontive words. And as we listen to them, we are clear about one thing, that you are committed to truth. And that you do not want your body, your church, to be on drift mode where we tolerate all manner of wrong thinking. Not as a community and not as individuals. So we pray this morning that you will instill in us this no-tolerance policy that we will be uh, faithful men who learn to discern and who confront whatever wrong thinking or wrong practices there are in our lives. We thank you for your grace today that you've given us another morning, another day to repent and to get it right by your Spirit and with your help. Help us to get it right today. In your strong name, amen. Have a great morning.